Welcome to Have You Heard, an IDF podcast. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, a nonprofit organization that improves the diagnosis, treatment, and quality of life of people affected by primary immunodeficiency. People living with PI are the zebras of the medical world, and the IDF community is one big zebra herd. Today, we will be discussing Wiscott-Aldridge syndrome, or WAS, a rare form of primary immunodeficiency. This episode is part of the diagnosis-specific series dedicated to exploring particular diagnoses so listeners can gain a better understanding of the symptoms and treatment options of these conditions. All right, let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode, Wiscott-Aldrich Syndrome, part of our diagnosis-specific series. My name is Matt Humbach, and for the past six or seven years, I've worked with IDF and their communications team on a wide array of projects. One of the best parts of working with IDF has been learning about the inspirational stories of people living with PI and their families and how they're making a difference. And that's exactly what we'll be doing today. And I'm pleased to be joining you as your guest host for this episode. Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome, or WAS, is a unique form of primary immunodeficiency. WAS primarily affects males because it's an X-linked recessive condition. Beyond an increased susceptibility to infections, WAS is characterized by abnormal bleeding and eczema of the skin. Along with these common health challenges, people living with WAS may also develop severe autoimmune disease and have an increased risk of cancer, particularly lymphoma or leukemia. To discuss WAS further, we'll be talking with today's guest, Dr. Samathi Iyengar, the Executive Director of the Wiscott Aldrich Foundation. Dr. Iyengar is a pediatrician turned advocate for WAS after her son was diagnosed at a young age. She originally started the Wiscott Aldrich Foundation as an internet support group to gain more information and guidance about WAS. That support group has evolved into a volunteer-run nonprofit dedicated to research, funding, and providing education and support for families living with WAS worldwide. Dr. Iyengar is also a partner and longtime friend of IDF. Welcome, Dr. Iyengar. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Matt. Thank you very much for the very kind introduction and many thanks to IDF for inviting me to do this podcast with you here today. Great. So let's get started with the basics. Can you give us a a brief overview of WAS? And I think many of our listeners might be curious, what's the origination of the name Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome? Uh, Sure. So as you already mentioned, Wiscott is a very rare disorder. It happens in four in a million boys, and this is worldwide. So there is no particular country where more children are affected. It is an X-linked recessive disorder. So what is an X-linked recessive disorder? It basically means that the mothers or the females are the carriers and they pass on the mutated gene to their son. For example, I am the mutate, I carry the WAS gene mutation. I did not know it at that time, but I passed it on to my son. As you mentioned, there are three basic characteristics or classic characteristics. The first one, it is a bleeding disorder. And the reason there is a bleeding is because these patients have a decreased number of platelets. These platelets are also small, and it's the only known disease with small platelets. As we know, platelets are the cells that help with the clotting of the blood. 
So these children tend to bleed even with minor injuries. For instance, even a paper cut or a tooth that falls out can lead to prolonged bleeding. Unfortunately, this also can cause life-threatening bleeds. For example, if they get a head injury, it can cause a life-threatening brain hemorrhage, which is quite terrifying to even think of. The second, of course, is immune deficiency. Uh, so these children cannot fight off infections very well. So they are prone to infections from viruses, bacteria, and fungi, and some of them can be life-threatening infections. Over 80% of Wiscott children tend to have eczema, which is red, dry, itchy, and scaly skin. And now to the interesting part of the question that you asked, why is it called Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome? Way back almost a century ago, 1937, Dr. Alfred Wiscott, who lived in Germany, was following a family of three boys in a family who had Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome, and they had four sisters who were normal. All of these children had low platelets. They also had bloody diarrhea, and unfortunately, all of them passed away before they were 18 months old. He recognized the importance of what he was seeing, and he actually named it as congenital hereditary thrombopathia. Now, two decades later, Dr. Aldrich, who lived in the U.S., was also following a family of Wiscots when he realized that many more in the family had been affected, and he went to the trouble of looking through six generations of the family and charting out who had Wiscott and who did not and realized that the females were the carriers and passed this on to their sons. And therefore, in order to honor both these physicians who independently worked on this disease, it's called Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome. Yeah, that's great information. And I think it's important to note there are two different levels of severity of WAS. Can you talk about each of these? Uh, yes, certainly. There's a wide variation in the severity of the disease. And interestingly, even in the same family with the same mutation, boys can show different manifestations of the disease. Dr. Hans Ox from Seattle Children's Hospital created a scoring system ranging from one through five, one being the mildest form of the disease and five being the severe form of the disease. So in the mildest form, these children can have just a bleeding disorder, that is they have low platelets, but they do not have a lot of eczema and they do not have immune deficiency, i.e. they do not have a higher risk of infections. So one and two are classified as mild Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome. Now in the three to five, they also have a bleeding disorder, just like the mild Wiscott's. However, they also tend to have immune deficiency. So they tend to have increased risk of infections. And they also tend to have more complications such as autoimmune disorders and malignancies. One of the things that I'd like to highlight here is that this score is not a static score, meaning Usually when we think of disease progression, we think if somebody's a one, they can slowly get to five. In Wiscott, that is not so. For example, if somebody has a score of one today and tomorrow they happen to get an autoimmune disease, such as say nephritis, they automatically become a score of five. So you can go from one to five, a score of one to five overnight without going through stages of two, three, and four. And this, this is one of the challenges that our families face. Hope that explains things. Yeah, that's great information. And beyond those three basic clinical features you mentioned in your introduction of WAS, what are some other severe health challenges we tend to see with patients living with WAS? Uh, that's great, yes. Uh, one of the things we see very early on is the 
allergies. These children tend to have allergies to the environment, but also importantly, they tend to have allergies to food. For example, my son, he had bloody diarrhea starting at two weeks of age, and this was because of his food allergies. Mm -hmm. And many children face this around the world. This is something we see, and they often have to have specialized formulas to prevent this from happening. And this is a risk that continues through life. More importantly, they are at risk. These boys are at increased risk for autoimmune disorders. And autoimmune disorders are where the body turns on itself and attacks its own organs. So for example, if it attacks the blood vessels, it could cause vasculitis or nephritis if it attacks the kidney. And interestingly, we already have low, these children already have low platelets. They can develop, on top of this, they can develop what is called this ITP or immune thrombocytopenic purpura, which further decreases their counts. Even more scary is that there is an increased risk for malignancy cancers such as leukemias and lymphomas can happen. So autoimmunity and increased malignant risk of malignancy is a big concern, especially for those with severe Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome, where it tends to happen at a very young age. This also happens in patients with the milder form of Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome, but it usually happens after the third and fourth decade of life. That's good information. Thanks for breaking that down. So Dr. Iyengar, as we work through this step-by-step, what are the current available treatment options for WAS? The treatment options for WAS are several, but it depends on the severity of the disease. So for those with the most severe form of the disease, the recommended treatment is a hematopoietic stem cell transplant. And this is because children with the severe form of Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome do not live past their teen years Mm. unless they are there is a treatment option available. Now, hematopoietic stem cell transplant, also called bone marrow transplant or BMT for short, is a pretty intense and risky procedure. So where chemotherapy is essentially given to make space in the marrow, and this marrow is, the bone marrow is replaced with healthy cells from a healthy donor. Now, when this is successful and in good centers, the survival is 90%, even though it is such an intense procedure. And with a cure, these children lead completely normal lives. They do deal with short-term issues such as infection and graft-versus-host disease, but most of them do very well. So over the last few years, another exciting development has happened, which is experimental gene therapy, which has become available for those with severe Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome. So in experimental gene therapy, the patient's own cells are harvested and a normal or corrected Wiscott gene is placed in those cells. Chemotherapy is given to remove the patient's affected cells, and it is replaced with these corrected cells. The nice thing is with this, because the patient's own cells are used, there is no risk of graft-versus-host disease. However, after the treatment, they are still at risk of infections. While this is still experimental and we don't have long-term data, it seems like a very exciting proposal with less mortality and we will see how this progresses. And hopefully over the coming decades, this will become more available to our families. And now to the more difficult part of the treatment for the mild Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome, the pathway here is not so clear at all. So there are two basic options. One is whether to do a bone marrow transplant and be cured of the disease or to live with the disease. For those lucky few who have a fully matched sibling, the best option is to go ahead and get a transplant. 
for those who do not have a fully matched sibling donor, it's important to have a good conversation with your immunologist and also with a bone marrow transplant physician and weigh the risks and benefits of doing a transplant versus not doing a transplant. So as you can see, this is a quandary that our families face, including ours. 20 years ago, when we went through this, it was a terrifying choice to make. On one side was the immediate risk of a transplant. On the other side was to allow our son to live with the unknowns, the fears of bleeding, the risk of autoimmunity and the risk of malignancy. And this is the difficult choice that our families with the mild whiskered altered syndrome face. And we all wish many times that we had a crystal ball to give us answers on what is the right choice. So for those who live with the disease, we do what is called preventative and vigilant care. So to, to help prevent bleeding, when they're very young as toddlers, we put helmets on their heads. And as they grow older, we ask them to be careful if they ride a bike and definitely know things like contact sports and be careful on jungle gyms, et cetera. It's yeah. pretty hard. Mm -hmm. And uh, if they do develop infections, there is prophylactic antibiotics and IVIG. Occasionally, splenectomy is recommended to increase the platelet counts, but that comes with its own risks. So overall, as you can see, our hope is to find a less toxic cure, which is why this funding for research is so important for these families. So then that's an amazing overview and, and some great detailed information for our audience, but let's switch gears a little bit and talk about your personal journey and that of your son and your family. And tell us about that, that journey for, for you as an individual. Uh, sure, Matt. Our journey started way back 1998. We lived in sunny California with our two daughters and we had our beautiful son was born. And three days out, we took him in just for a check for, because he was jaundiced and they found out that his platelet counts were low. Uh, they said, oh, it's probably nothing. It's something we see and not to worry about. It should get better. And from then on, his platelet counts, which had been 58,000, continued to drop to the level where it was 15,000. And just, just for knowledge, a normal person's counts range from 150,000 to 400,000. And our son had 15,000, which is about a tenth of what is normal. Wow. Wow. Yes, it was it was terrifying. And especially as he learned to sit and walk and stand, we were just running behind him, hoping to prevent him from walking. But we still then did not have a diagnosis. We were in and out of the doctors with various procedures, bone marrow biopsies, colonoscopies, it was 10 months of age when he was finally diagnosed. It was actually Dr. Hans Arts who diagnosed uh, our son for us. He was diagnosed as having mild whiskered Aldrich syndrome, i.e. he did not have immune deficiency, and we looked for a match. Our daughters were not a match. And we, as a physician, of course, I went to the library to look for information. Hard to believe there was no information, nothing on mild whiskered Aldrich syndrome. It was just a mere footnote. So I began calling physicians around the US, National Institutes of Health, and eventually reaching out to physicians in London and Paris to help us make a decision on whether we should transplant our son or not. It was probably the one of the most agonizing decisions when my husband and I made that decision to allow our son to live with this dreadful disease and to not have a cure. And simply because at that point, we did not even have a 10 of 10 donor match. The best match we had was a haploidentical donor, which is a half match. And this, uh, this is something that we see over and over 
patients are facing. And we are lucky. I'm a physician. I could pick up and call physicians. Not everybody has that opportunity. So as our son grew, we were scared. We put a helmet on him. We padded every part of the house. I think our house looked like a padded some crazy place (laughs) in reality it did yeah Uh, and eventually it was school time what do you do yeah he's going to yeah he's going to come home and every time he caught a gastroenteritis he would start bleeding he would start vomiting blood so we decided not to send him to school because he could get pushed over by a kid i gave up my job and i started homeschooling him we homeschooled him till third grade and he eventually began begging to go to school like his sisters So we sent him to school. I stayed at school for most of the time. And uh, our son, we're very lucky that Amalan has been fantastic in adjusting to his disease. Instead of playing sports, he took to Scrabble, became the national Scrabble champion. And actually along with his coach, yep. Along with his coach, he raises funds for Duke where he is being treated. And he has raised $60,000 so far to help children who go through bone marrow transplant. So eventually he got into robotics, but by the time high school and college came, the disease has begun to catch up. He began to have autoimmune conditions, mainly in the skin. He developed psoriasis and he developed a very painful condition called hydrogenitis suppurativa, essentially abscesses in his armpits. Mm. And oh, they were excruciatingly painful. And we've managed this for years and i think there's months on end we were at the dermatologist two to three times a week disrupting his college disrupting his education and painful treatments eventually we got a handle on it and that is under control now but this is not an easy disease to manage even when we have all the support systems in the world we're very happy that our son finished his master's in uh, electrical engineering just last year and started his work at John Hopkins. We cannot be more proud of him, but we know that the wolf is at the door. We know that he is heading on to the ages when autoimmunity and other disorders are probably going to catch up with him. Side by side, along with him going through this, this had a significant impact on our daughters Mm -hmm. because I, the minute he was born, my entire attention was to keep him alive. And I ceased to be the mother that I used to be. I could not give my daughters the time and affection and be there emotionally for them. That's, that was very hard and it's still hard to go through. Yeah. So along, along this journey in 2009 was when we met Marsha. And I already had connection with physicians. And Marsha encouraged us to start doing things and help our families. And this is something that we'd been wanting to do. So it was a perfect match. We started an internet support group. And it was great because the first time we could talk to Wiscott families around the world, and this naturally led to the first IDF, Wiscott Aldrich Syndrome Conference in Chicago in 2010. That was a watershed moment. It was a time when for the first time, Wiscott families got to see each other and the children got to meet other children like them. And it also shaped the direction of the foundation. Initially, it was just a support organization for families. We expanded to include research, especially to find improved cures for Wiscadolis syndrome and improve the quality of life and also add education. And education has been an important piece of where we work with IDF 
to bring this all important up-to-date information for our families through the conferences that is done every other year. And we're very, very grateful to IDF that they provide this on a constant basis for our family. So over the years, our foundation, the biggest part has been when we started the foundation was we did not want other families to go through what we went through, to be alone in this journey, to have the information, to have the support, and to also provide better cures. And it has been wonderful that we to see the progress that we, we've been able to make over the years with this disease. That's amazing. And thank you for sharing that story. And Amalan sounds like an amazing, strong young man. And, and you sound like an amazing, strong mother and physician and advocate. And it's interesting to hear, you know, the lack of resources that you ran into at the time of Amalan's diagnosis and how that prompted you to take action and, and really how that parallels Marsha Boyle's journey and her founding of IDF. There's a lot of neat parallels there, certainly. Well, thank you for being here, Dr. Angar. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to explore a couple of these topics in more detail. No matter where you are along your journey, IDF wants to help you manage living with primary immunodeficiency, or PI. As a community-empowered organization, IDF can provide you with support, education, and resources to help you cope with a wide variety of issues related to PI, including physical and mental health, insurance, and relationships. For more information, please visit www.primaryimmune.org. Welcome back. Dr. Samathi Iyengar is here with us discussing Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome, or WAS. I'd like to continue the conversation on treatment for WAS, specifically hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, or HSCT, more commonly referred to as bone marrow transplant. Dr. Angar, receiving an HSCT, or gene therapy, can be a potential treatment option for people living with WAS. Are these treatments recommended for every WAS patient, or is there a specific criteria that needs to be followed? That's a great question, Matt, and uh, it's an important question because the answers can sometimes be nuanced. So when is HCT or bone marrow transplant recommended? So for patients with severe WAS, their life expectancy without a curative treatment is just in their teen years. Generally, they don't make it past their teen years, making it important to have a cure. So therefore, for all patients with severe Wiscott, a bone marrow transplant is recommended. And similarly, for those with mild Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome who have a perfect sibling match and the outcomes are really good, the recommendation is they go ahead with a bone marrow transplant. However, over the past two decades, things have changed. Whereas before, there was a hesitation in recommending a transplant when patients were over the age of five years. That's not true anymore. Patients over the age of five years also tend to do well, while it is still true that best outcomes are when they're under five, we are having older and older patients going into transplant. In fact, most recently, we had a 55-year-old who had a transplant, and he is two to three years out and doing great. So it's fabulous to see these kinds of advances happening. Another big advance that happened is before, we had to have a perfect match, a 10 of 10 match. And over the last five to seven years, transplantation has started with what was not available for my son 20 years ago in that haploidentical transplant, i.e. a parent can be a donor. And those 
kinds of transplantations are taking off because there's better control of the graft versus host disease. And this is an exciting advancement because this is offering this treatment for so many more patients. Sure. So what about the changes in for the X-linked thrombocytopenia? Now, the age factors is important for the XLTs as well. While HSCT is not recommended for XLTs in general, it's important for our XLT families to note that this decision to not transplant is not a static decision. It's not a one-time decision. So when they meet with the first with the bone marrow transplant physician and the immunologist, they can make the decision not to transplant. However, it's important to go back on a regular basis, preferably every year, and make that decision again based upon where their child's health is and how many advances, how much improvement has been had in bone marrow transplant and reevaluate that decision. I just wanted to reiterate that point that it is not a one-time decision and this has to be continually evaluated. Now to go on to gene therapy. So who is experimental gene therapy available for? First of all, it's only available in Europe. It's only in Milan, in one center, Milan in Italy. It is available in general for those with severe Viscidolis syndrome, for those who do not have a fully matched donor, i.e. a 10 of 10 donor, and for the few patients who may not be able to tolerate chemotherapy for any reason, these are the one, these are the Wiscott patients who can avail experimental gene therapy at this time. Our hope is that over the next decade, we will see this become available for all patients with Wiscott syndrome. Thanks for that information, Dr. Ingar. So then in terms of long-term outcomes post-HSCT, what do they look like for, for WASP patients? So hematopoietic stem cell transplant has been available for many decades now. And as we've seen, this is not an easy procedure. It is a pretty intense and uh, risky procedure, if you will. That being said, we are seeing patients in our, in our support groups who are 30 years post who are actually doing quite well. In the short term, especially in the first year or two after transplant, patients don't do go through a lot. They could have infections. They can have autoimmunity such as ITP. They can end up with what's called mixed chimerism. That is, they have a mix of the donor cells and the patient cells, so they're not fully corrected. And of course, the dreaded complication of graft-versus-host disease or liver toxicity. However, when they finish those first couple of years, those who've had a successful transplant seem to lead pretty normal lives. Probably one of the, the things that come up the most in terms of what are we going through, they have dental issues, some of them have hypothyroidism and need to take thyroid pills. One of the challenges that come up over and over again, for which there, we don't have too many answers is, is there a risk for infertility for these boys? And we don't have all the data we are seeing because the reason we don't have the data is it's only been a few decades and the patients are now getting into the 20s and 30s and having children. Yeah. So we are seeing patients who have children, some who've gone through infertility treatment and some who have not, So, which is very exciting. However, these chemotherapy agents can cause infertility. So that's something to be very, very watchful for. So, and uh, the nice thing is doctors are also so aware of this and they're trying to use chemotherapy meds with reduced toxicity to try to reduce the risk of infertility for our patients. So by and large, the treatment 
for successfully treated whisker, the post-transplant post outcomes look great and they tend to lead normal lives. So an important consideration for any rare disease is the research that's being done. Can you talk about some of the research or clinical trials that's going on related to WAS? Absolutely. Challenging as this disease is, Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome is one of the diseases that researchers seem to be interested in, and we're very fortunate for it. For instance, we still have the gene therapy trials that are going on in Milan. And right now, patients from the U.S. have to go to Milan to get it done. So we're actually trying to get, we're working with the different stakeholders to try to bring it to the U.S. and have it done in a U.S. center, which hopefully maybe in this year we can get that done. So in, in terms of the other curative treatments and what is being done for HCT, doctors are looking at trying to find chemotherapy agents that are less toxic, such as there's a triosulfan study that's going on and other chemotherapy agents that are less toxic. So how about for those who are not getting a curative treatment? There is a study being done to improve the platelet counts. So there are two medications called romiplastin and L-thrombopag, and there's a study that is looking into the effectiveness of both and comparing them to see which one is better. And this can greatly improve the quality of life of our patients. Aside from these clinical trials, what is also exciting is there are um, research studies going on in the lab. One of the most exciting studies is the gene editing study, which is being done and hopefully might start trials actually in patients in the next five years or so. And uh, our foundation is actually funding. We just started a funding for gene editing and for gene therapy just this year. Another exciting prospect is small molecules, which is being studied by a group of physicians. And this can increase what is called the WASP protein. So the basic problem with Wiscodolder syndrome is the lack of WASP protein in the cells. So this small molecule, they're trying to bring back the WASP protein into the cells and thereby correct the disease. So the future looks bright with all these studies going on. Uh, I'm very hopeful that in the next decade or two decades, we will have much less toxic and much better cure for Wiscodaldrich syndrome. So beyond the research and treatment piece that we've talked a little bit about, how important you know, is support for a family uh, of a person living with WAS, especially during um, the HSCT treatment phase? Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. Um, the support needed, it cannot be understated. Wiscarolder syndrome is such a challenging disease. It's so it is so complex and it's a very unpredictable disease. For example, in our own house, we especially when our son was younger, we felt that life would turn on a dime. We would be going about our normal schedule. He would fall down and hit his head. In 20 minutes, we were in the Duke emergency room trying to get a CT scan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or they could have infection and they have to be right away in the emergency room. So this affects not just the patient, but it also affects the family and particularly the siblings. So whether, and with HSCT, it's patients have to be away from their home for six to nine months. Sometimes people move across the state to find good centers, or sometimes people move across countries, leaving the spouse and the other children in another location. So you can imagine the amount of support that is needed to take care of these families. And this is just the emotional support. And fortunately, we have a great support group where our patients is just a worldwide support group where they 
really attend to one another in a loving and caring way. What are the other important support needed? I think probably one of the most important things I find is providing families the information to make good decisions, up-to-date information and good information. And we provide this through our conferences which with the IDF, also in our support group, and also through the Zoominars that we are now attending. The third and important component is financial support. As we can imagine, these families, first of all, the medical bills mount up. Sometimes they're going back and forth to doctors in different states, and we support our families through financial resources. There are also other important pieces of support that is needed. For example, our families, not uniformly do we all get genetic counseling. This is so important for the patients to understand and for the future, for the children, for the carriers to understand when to discuss this with their daughters. I find that our carriers carry a significant burden because we not only affect our sons, but we could pass it on to our daughters as well. And there is not enough support to make these decisions as to how to tell them and when to tell them. And very often our families ask questions. I want to have another child. What should I do? So the support is needed at so many levels for our families. And over time, they are getting better support. Much more work needs to be done, however. Well, some amazing things to consider and you know, um, amazing work by your foundation and advocacy on a obviously a multifaceted condition, um, but a, a strong and growing community uh, of the WASP community. So we appreciate you taking time today and, and sharing this information and taking part in this conversation. Are there any concluding thoughts or final points you want to leave us with? Uh, first of all, I wanted to thank you for this opportunity to be on this podcast with you. And just to reiterate, was caught as a very challenging disease and the current cures are toxic and risky. So there is much work to be done in finding improved cures across the board, not just for severe Wiscott, but for mild Wiscott-Aldous syndrome. And I'm very grateful that we're partnering with IDF to provide an important information, the education piece for our foundation, but for our families, but also we partner with IDF to do research especially on the quality of life study, the only quality of life study that has been done so far, and that was in partnership with the PIDTC and the IDF. So on behalf of the Wiscott Aldrich Foundation, we really thank IDF for this partnership and for your support over the years. We're looking forward to continue this work with IDF to provide education and to support our Wiscott Aldrich syndrome families worldwide. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Angar, and thanks for sharing your wisdom and knowledge on WAS with us today, and and we appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Matt. And many thanks to our listeners for being with us today. We hope you'll join us for more podcast episodes like this one in the future as we explore the topics that mean the most to you. Until then, all of us here at IDF want to wish you good health and strength. And remember, you're never alone. There are always people out there who want to help. We all just have to find each other. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. If you like our show and want to learn more, please subscribe to this podcast so future episodes will be sent to your device automatically. To learn more about primary immunodeficiency and the PI community, please visit the IDF website at www.primaryimmune.org.
And if you have a question you would like answered, email us at idf at primaryimmune.org. Thanks for tuning in.